having a young gynecological age or not having had periods for very long makes women a lot more likely to lose their period due to undereating or undereating carbs. So it's the 20-something women that I see who are losing their period to low-carb diet. And not if they not if they started out being very insulin resistant or something like that, maybe that's different. And not if they're a 45-year-old woman going into perimenopause and maybe feeling great on low carb. That's different. I'm talking about these, you know, young women basically and also the young women who've been mistakenly told they have PCOS based on an ultrasound and then Google it and read that they're supposed to go low carb and they're already under eating. Basically, they are then at that situation, they are going 180 degrees in the wrong direction from what they need to do. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast And thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. My next guest is a period revolutionary. Lara Bryden is a naturopathic doctor, women's health activist, and author of what can only be described as a Bible for women everywhere, the Period Repair Manual. Lara's work is about providing practical solutions and natural alternatives to hormonal birth control. She's helped thousands of women who suffer from missing periods, hair loss, PMS, polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, adult acne, and so much more, establish treatment plans that don't require ingesting synthetic hormones that shut down ovulation. Because this is precisely what happens when we take the pill. In this episode, Lara challenges us to get clear. Pill bleeds are not periods. We do not cycle when we're on the pill. When we don't cycle, we don't ovulate. When we don't ovulate, we don't produce progesterone. Women not having progesterone is like men not having testosterone. Let that sink in. This episode is a call to action for women everywhere. It's time for us to get empowered with knowledge so we can politely question and challenge the advice and scripts we're getting from our doctors, which time and time again is to take the pill or another form of hormonal birth control. There's so many topics I wanted to cover, but we just didn't get to them all. If you sent me a question, thank you. I also want to thank my gorgeous facialist, Karina from Bellamares, who suggested I have Lara on the podcast. Promise me if you only do one thing after listening to this episode... Buy the period repair manual. I learned so much. Okay, here's Lara and I for Offline. So your book, Period Repair Manual, 
provides us opportunities and education to move away from pill medicine, yes, which I like because there's lots mm-hmm. of different versions of that, um, and provides sort of entry points to us thinking about how we can do things differently. First of all, there is so much in that book. <laughs> like how long did it take you to write that? About a year. Okay. And then it be- became a second edition, which took an additional three months to put in 300 additional references for some reason and have it fact-checked by an endocrinologist. And, yeah, so there was another step in there. What a labour of love. It was, yeah. Well, thank you, because reading it, I was like, this is a Bible for women. I remember when I was just about to release that I got quite scared with, what if no one buys it? You know, what is this going to be like? I've just, what if no one likes it or no one buys it? And my husband, I just remember so clearly, he said to me, even if you knew for certain that no one, you weren't going to make any money from this book, would you release it anyway? I'm like, yes, absolutely, because the, this is this is what I want women to know about. Mm-hmm. I was just saying to you, I've got to stop talking about myself in this thing, but that resonates with me deeply because the purpose of this podcast, what I hope it or what it seeks to explore, which is self and helping women get to know themselves better it was the same. It's like, it just needs to exist. If I never make a dime, and frankly, if it's not what I do for a living or whatever, that's fine. I think when it comes from that intention in our heart, I think success is just going to, well, gosh, hopefully happen. Um, But yeah, thank you because reading it, wow, for all the things that I don't suffer from, I really had empathy for the women who do when I started to really understand the pain Yes. That some of us are in um, and how confusing. And also, I'll go as far as to say that we've been lied to <laughs> a lot. Yes. Yeah. I'm thinking how to answer that. I have lots of things to say about yeah. that. We'll, we are yeah. on the cusp or in the middle of, it started, a revolution in women's health. Mm. And it's the millennials and younger who are going to do it, who are saying what the actual... Fuck. Fuck. Are we doing? Yeah. With these contraceptive drugs. Mm. What is this? And so I have this certainty that future generations of doctors and women are going to look back at this era of contraceptive drugs, which has been about 60 years, but which is not that long, really, and think, what were we doing? Because medicine does that with so many things, right? We look back at what doctors were doing 80 years ago and think, what were they doing? (laughs) That seems really crazy by today's standards. And the standards in 40 years are going to look at this complete routine shutdown of women's hormones, a castration Mm. of women's hormones on a routine basis. Castration of women's hormones. Wow. Something crazy. Okay. Okay. Um, first of all, (laughs) why is it so important that we have a period? The period is not the main event. Mm. The main event of the menstrual cycle is ovulation, which, of course, everyone probably is thinking, oh, that's how you make a baby. That's how you release an egg, that you make a baby. And the current narrative in medicine is that you don't need to ovulate unless you want to make a baby. And that's what I'm challenging because ovulation is how women make hormones. Ovulation is how we make estrogen and progesterone that we need for our mood, for our muscle strength, for our metabolic rate, for our brain health. 
for general health, just like men need testosterone for their health. So to say to women, you don't need your hormones except to make a baby, would be like saying to men, like quite literally, you don't need your testosterone until you're ready to make a baby. Try this, you know, how's that going to go down? (laughs) It's not. (laughs) (laughs) You know, your libido, your muscle strength, your mood, your confidence, everything you get from testosterone, all of that's, you know, expendable, not necessary. That's what we're doing to women. Mm. Um, It's interesting you say that. That was my first aha moment reading the book. It's just weird because I reflect back. I'm like, it seems dumb now, but realizing how important the word cycle yes. was in this whole thing, we just kind of throw that word around, but really our body goes through a literal cycle yes. of hormones each month. <laughs> the ovulation is the main event. So yeah. what happens is on the on route to ovulation, we make estrogen. And then after the ovulation, that, that main event in the ovaries, a temporary gland forms, which is pretty awesome. Because I'm a, I'm a biologist originally, is my mm. background. So I see everything through the biologist lens. So that gland that we make in our ovaries every month goes from basically the size of a single cell to four centimeters in wow. one day. Wow. There's no other tissue that grows like that. It's this amazing... Thing that we do, and then we make a huge amount of progesterone from that, which is very beneficial for, well, many things, but also it's a big part about having a healthy period. So I think at one point in the book, I say something like, you know, the w- basically having a healthy period is a lot about making progesterone, mm-hmm. ovulating and making enough progesterone, because progesterone is what keeps our periods from being too heavy, for example. Mm. It's and this whole timing of ovulation and then the two weeks that we make progesterone, that's what determines a cycle. That's why we have a monthly cycle, because that's how long it takes the ovaries to do that. Mm. Now, at this point, I'm going to go straight to the fact that pill bleeds are dosed in a monthly way. Mm. We'll go straight in. <laughs> which is crazy. Like, not to Mm. overstate it, but there was never a reason to bleed monthly on the pill. It started as a bit of a kind of smokescreen. I I guess, you know, they have different explanations. It's like it was a way to convince doctors and women that it was the dosing of these drugs was something normal. And that it was almost mimicking. Yeah. And sometimes they say, oh, it's a way to know every month that you're not pregnant. Okay, whatever. But the truth is, contraceptive drugs work by shutting down ovaries and then... The pill bleed is just a withdrawal bleed from those drugs. And that does not have to be monthly. It could be every three months. Mm. It could be even even less time. So it's the fact that it's done monthly is a very weird thing. And what that's done, unfortunately, is it's conflated pill bleed with periods. So then we get all kinds of headlines, you know, doctors we see these we see them all the time. These headlines, you don't women don't need a period. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about women don't need a monthly pill bleed, which is 100% true. But we do need a menstrual cycle because that's how we make hormones. That's not up for debate. Mm. The scientists know that. There's lots of people researching the benefits of a menstrual cycle for health, which is why, for example, with undereating or something called hypothalamic amenorrhea and you lose your period and you're not making hormones, that is not good for your body, mm. for your bones or... And 
the contraceptive drugs from the pill don't compensate for that. Mm. You, you notice that I keep using the word contraceptive drug. I went on a little personal, I just drew a line in the sand a few years ago. It's like, I am not going to use the word hormone to refer to those drugs anymore. Mm-hmm. They're hormone-like. There's a, the estrogen, the, the, it's called ethanol estradiol in, the, in most pills. It, it's, it's quite estrogen-like, but the progestins... In hormonal birth control are very different from progesterone, very different. Yeah, I had a question about this. Yeah. The steroid drugs in hormonal birth control yeah. are pseudo-hormones. Yes. And they mimic the effects of the naturally occurring progesterone. Some of the effects. Okay, some of the effects. But they also cause many opposite effects. Yes. And I wondered if you could share with us what some of those, I guess, are they their side effects? Yes. Yeah, when they're not a positive. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What are some of the side effects that okay. it can cause? Yeah. So let's talk about the progestins mm-hmm. for a minute. So they have names like levingestrol and drosperinone and cipterone. So if you're listening, you can go and get your packet and read the ingredients and see which drug you're on. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, in the media, they still refer to that as progesterone. Progesterone cannot, the word progesterone cannot be used that way. Progesterone is a very specific word to refer to as the naturally the occurring hormone that we make. Hormone. Yeah. So progestin is the more appropriate word. Mm-hmm. Some of the differences, here's the difference. Hair. So progesterone promotes the healthy growth of head hair. A good thing. That's why women during pregnancy get Lots gorgeous hair. hair. It's, it's nice. And also progesterone has some natural anti-androgen effects. So it helps to naturally kind of downregulate and reduce testosterone on like excess testosterone in women, which is a good thing. So it can help to clear up facial hair and things like that. But on the topic of healthy head hair, progesterone Mm -hmm. promotes that. Now, one of the progestins, the most common progestin prescribed is a drug called levingestrol, which is more similar to testosterone than it is to progesterone. Mm -hmm. It's derived from testosterone. And so it causes hair loss similar to what women experience from excess testosterone, which is not a very nice kind of hair loss because it's actually a, a thinning, a, a, a shrinking of the hair follicles and over years just a, you know, a, a thinning and thinning of the hair that is sometimes not reversible, Wow, which is very upsetting. That can happen in other situations too. That's the type of hair loss that women might experience with a condition called PCOS, which is excess male hormones. Mm-hmm. The same situation, right? The hair follicles are being exposed to testosterone essentially and levingestrol does that in some women not every woman would be i guess sensitive to it but it's a it's a well enough known problem that in 2010 the American Hair Loss Association issued a statement about it saying women need to be advised that this drug can cause hair loss now women are not being advised no, about that. No, it's like this is news to me. And when I was on I've, it for I think fifteen years. And so with my patients, I've had these. This is the kind of this is where my book came from. Is my work with patients mm. and these conversations over the last twenty five years. Well, now. that's what I loved about your book was the case studies. Yeah, the little patient stories. So yeah. you can, I mean, and for everybody listening, you just have to buy this book. <laughs> I think it's you know sometimes reading um, health content can be quite dense but you've written it in a way that is very relatable. And it's also like you can almost track what you have essentially yeah. and then go to the chapter yeah. that most, you know, is relevant to you. But then you'll read yourself in the ca- the guest, uh, yeah. the 
the patient case studies yeah. because there's, we all have really similar stories. I've had a number of patients say to me, oh, that was me, right? That story on chapters, and it wasn't. Like, like they're all loosely yeah. based on real patients, but it's funny, the ones, the patients who thought it was them, it, it wasn't. Mm. But some of the patient stories, these are conversations I have with patients, back to the hair loss thing, mm. that sometimes result in tears is they come, I can't understand what's going on with my hair. Like for the last three years, my hair has been thinning and thinning and now it looks like this. And they show me and their their hairline is receding. Mm. And I say, so what changed, you know, three or four years ago? It's like, oh, I really don't know. I have no idea. And then it's like, oh, when did you start that, you know, have that implant or start that pill? Or, oh, I changed to this pill at that point. And, and then it. it's like, did anyone mention to you that that particular drug can cause hair loss? Mm. It's like, no. And the, the reaction from a lot of my patients is a real sense of betrayal that they haven't been given this information, which is mm. one of the reasons I wrote this book. And I think one of the reasons this is going to start to change is yeah. because more and more, mainly young women, but mm. some older women too, are just saying, what is going on? Because we, this, this is the beauty of social media and technology yes. is we have the access. And really what came up for me in your book is the responsibility on doctors, like it's just like prescribing the pill is this band-aid solution that's making us physically and mentally unwell. What is their responsibility? It's like you can't be doing this and how do we attempt to stop that? Like what will that come from empowered patients? This is what what's required is a paradigm shift in the literal sense of the word. So we are existing under a certain paradigm. The narrative, the paradigm is that these drugs are totally safe. They've, they're like, they've been around forever. You know, they've been around for 60 years, which is actually not that long. And 60 years of not listening to women's side effects and not tracking the side effects. So here's another example. Mood is the other one that's going to yeah. topple this paradigm. Because... So there was a there was a, a huge study, Danish study in 2016 of one. They studied 1.1 million women and linked all types of hormonal birth control to increased risk of anxiety and depression. And there've been a couple studies since then, but there was one last week, or I just shared on my Instagram just a few days ago, where they found that it was a Canadian study, and they found that women who took the pill or any well, it was about the pill, but I would say this would be true for any type of hormonal birth control. As a teenager, went on to have a three times greater risk of developing anxiety and depression even years after they stopped it. Wow. And they said the mechanism potentially is that the brain is developing when you're a teenager and the brain is highly sensitive to hormones, or in this case, to contraceptive drugs, or really the you know the lack of hormones, because that's well, that's almost like we've been starved of starved starved of your. Well, this yeah. is, I think I use the phrase in my book, robbed of your own hormones. Mm. So it's not just that the contraceptive drugs have side effects; they're not as good as our own hormones. But meanwhile, they shut down ovarian function, so you're not making your own hormones. Mm. So it's a double whammy. The only exception, and I will mention it here because it's sort of an interesting. It's worth mentioning. The hormonal IUD is a little different. Oh, yes. I had a question about this because okay. I know you do recommend Well, I don't. if you're going to do anything. I don't love it, but yeah. the reason I, it's a bit different for what it's worth, it's, okay, it's the drug levonorgestrel, so it's not progesterone, 
just to be clear, there's mm-hmm. no progesterone in any type of hormonal birth control. It's the drug levingestrol in a relatively small dose because it's working locally. You were saying it's like one-tenth. In the uterus. It's about, I think blood levels are about one-tenth of what you would have if you took a levingestrol pill. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is it does not always shut down ovulation. Mm-hmm. So it does not always switch off hormones. It tends to, in some women, especially young women, I think in the first 12 months when the dose of the drug is higher, just because there's more drug coming out of the device, there, I think, usually is ovulation suppression. But then after that, women can start to cycle and make their own progesterone, make their own hormones. So at least they're doing that. Mm -hmm. The drug is still present in their system, but at least they're doing that. So here's a, this is the comparison I like to make. With the hormonal IUD... You can cycle, i.e. ovulate, have a menstrual cycle, but not bleed mm-hmm. if, if, the, if it stops bleeding, which it can do. So with the hormonal IUD, you can cycle but not bleed. With the pill, you, you bleed, bleed but don't cycle. cycle. Which is a... It's a fake reality. That bleed but don't cycle is... That's the part that really, you can see on my, the look on my face. Yeah. That's the part that really gets me. Like that is... Well, one of the things I loved in your book was, and maybe this is a good question for you, but the language is important to you in yes. that you don't allow patients to come in and call that a period. Right. So you call it, as you were saying before, a withdrawal bleed yes. or a pill bleed. Yeah. Because basically it's fake. Yeah. It's set up to almost trick your mind into being like, this is my period because I'm seeing blood. Exactly. Oh, it's wild. But I do it gently. I'm like, yeah, we're, yes, just, we're not yeah. going to use that word. Yeah. Because the other thing that when patients will say is, oh, yeah, my period stopped when I stopped the pill. That's a common thing. I would have someone sit down in my yes, office. Yes, I want to talk about this at length. Yes. Yeah. So they're like, okay, my problem. I was like, what's okay? Why are you here today? Okay, my problem is when I stopped the pill, my period stopped. So the first thing to say is, okay, well, those weren't periods. So the last time you had a period was before you took the pill. Wow. So when was that? They're like, Shit, um, 15 years ago. When I was 17. I'm like, okay, so that's the last time you had a period. So now let's think about what were your periods like back then? Okay, and here's the other thing to say at this point. The problem with shutting down the cycles of teenagers is that that's when their cycle is maturing, or trying to mature. This is a big deal. Mm. And this is something that has just not been discussed very much. But this, I, I get this information from Professor Geraldine Pryor, who's the endocrinologist who helped me with period repair manual. She had some research that she quotes, and also just her knowledge as an endocrinologist. She states that it takes 12 years to mature the menstrual cycle. In other words, if you start having periods at 13... It's not until you're 25 that you have what she calls a robust cycle, which means you're making optimal amounts of progesterone. You're making that temporary gland, that corpus luteum. You're really doing it well. I mean, you may have had, you were ovulating during those intervening years, but you were just getting good at it, right? So, which is why to start with, it's not, it's totally normal that a teenager is going to have irregular periods, that a teenager is going to potentially have heavier periods because... She's those first few cycles. Just girls establishing itself. The, those first few cycles, girls haven't ovulated yet, so they're not making progesterone, which is the hormone that lightens the period. I just had a patient 
couple of oh, weeks, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Who, okay. So who, your first period, you're not ovulating. Well, it's unlikely. Okay. Those first few periods, you're probably, they're like practice periods. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Cute. You're just kind of, your body's like. Yeah, oh my okay. God, I'm bleeding. What's going on? It's, well, it's like, it's, it's from the estrogen. So you start, your ovaries wake up. They're like, okay, we're going to try this out. They make estrogen and that you know, thickens the uterine lining. And so eventually that's just going to, it's like a withdrawal bleed, like a breakthrough bleed. Mm -hmm. But eventually if all is going well and you're healthy and you start making progesterone, you start ovulating and making progesterone. And then that makes your periods more regular, lighter, hopefully less painful. Just that's how you mature your menstrual cycle. Now, the problem is if you shut that down. Not even given a chance. No, because remember, contraceptive drugs completely switch, pretty much switch off the ovaries, the communication between the brain and the ovaries. When, if you do that for 15 years and then stop the pill, most women cannot reasonably expect to just start ovulating just like that. Now, which is why, no, you're not going to just bounce back and start ovulating. Some women do. Here's what I find with my patients. And the, the question I always ask is, what were your periods like before you took the pill? And I'm just praying. I'm hoping that they had at least maybe even one year of periods or maybe two. So if a patient said to me, yeah, I, was, I didn't start the pill till I was like 17. I'd been having periods for four years or something. And they were semi-regular. I'm thinking, okay, good. I think it's going to be okay. You know, a baseline, we know what we might expect on return. Well, and also the ovaries knew kind of got started, right? Mm. They knew what to do. You, and well, we know that your ovaries could do that. They had done it before, mm. which is now this really speaks to the lack of research. So sometimes when anyone brings up the issue of post pill syndrome or post pill amenorrhea, which is post pill not getting your period, basically, then we'll get this like batted back to us. Oh, no, there was a study about that and it's fine. It's like, yeah, really? Because that was a study of adult women who maybe even after they had, had already had a baby or something and took the pill for a couple of years and then stopped it. Yes. Many of those women could get their period back. You give the p the pill to an eleven year old girl, and she takes it till she's twenty nine, and stops those drugs. I mean, no one has studied that. No. And so, is am I right in understanding? It's almost like that twenty nine year old girl almost re-enters yep. at the period of an eleven year old. Yep. She has to oh pretty much God. start up start where she left off. To a degree. Mm. I mean, obviously her brain's matured in other yes, ways. Yes, and yeah. Yes. I mean, and truth is no one's really studied that. Mm. We don't know what happens to these. Because at the moment, the paradigm we live under is just take the pill until you're ready for a baby and then we'll give you mm. IVF, basically. I guess this is a good segue into, like, I, I, I'm sort of like embodying the women listening going, but I have PCOS, but I have endometriosis, but, but, but... It helps me with my pain. It helps me with my skin. All of these things that make our lives more comfortable. Yes. Let's talk about that. Like, yes. Perfect question. <laughs> yeah. What? What? Okay. What do let's, we do instead? Let's talk I, about I those two things you mentioned: that. PCOS, skin, and endometriosis. I think they and there's other conditions, obviously, but let's stick with those. Let's start with endometriosis, and just to separate it out, it, it kind of gets its own. Ta dinner, its own table, <laughs> its own sick part of the room, which I know for all the listeners, the endometriosis listeners are going to feel a bit bad that I'm separating it out that way. But it is a special case in that it is quite a serious disease, can be. Mm -hmm. And it's not actually a period problem. It's a pelvic, it's an inflammatory disease for which at the moment there are not a lot of 
treatment options. Um, I do provide a few in my book, obviously, and mm-hmm. I treat a lot of women with endometriosis. And there is a lot of some interesting things happening with the research about some new potentially immune and anti-inflammatory treatments for that disease because it's not a hormonal condition. And surgery can help as well. So the, the part of the problem is endometriosis is under-researched. Mm-hmm. And there's been this idea, well, one thing we can do is just try to shut down hormones with the pill. And look, my approach is, and with my own patients and in my book, if that's helped and that has reduced the pain, then stay on the pill, at least for now. Sometimes with my patients, that'll even be what we do. But bearing in mind that the, do you know what the Cochrane collaboration is? Have you heard of that before? They're the big evidence-based. No. They're like the the grand authority of evidence-based medicine in the world. Their latest review of the oral contraceptive pill on endometriosis is that there's actually no clear evidence that it works. So what is it like? What's that word? Like psycho... Well, um... What's that word? It, look, I think I think it's, it does work. It does seem to help with mm. some women, but you know, statistically, it doesn't. For lots of women, it doesn't, and for some women, it makes it worse. So I think, mm. you know, it's definitely not an evidence-based medicine. Put it that way. But for all the listeners, if yes, if that's what's keeping you from severe pain and allows you to go to work, then okay. In my book, I say I still think the hormonal IUD is probably a better option for reasons we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. And there's. L- Endometriosis is like three podcasts in its own, actually. Yeah. So we will we've 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 mentioned endometriosis. We'll just put that aside for the moment because mm-hmm. that's only one in ten women. But for the other nine out of ten women who don't have that disease, I'm going to say for many of us, there is very little reason to take the pill for these conditions. So. Okay, to be fair, there's some other more serious conditions that happen in our 40s. There's something called adenomyosis, which is quite similar to endo. So, but let's say barring those more severe, let's talk about the young women mm-hmm. and PCOS and skin. Let's talk about that group. Yes, because one thing I found interesting in your book is that um, a lot of women are actually misdiagnosed yes. with PCOS after coming off the pill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about PCOS for okay. a minute. Okay, yeah. Because it's... This is another topic I get quite passionate about. Mm -hmm. It is, I've stated a few times, I would say it's the single most misunderstood condition out there. Part of the problem is the name, this polycystic ovary, that part of the, that that is a highly misleading name. And most experts agree with that now. They're trying to change the name because it's so problematic. It's nothing to do with anything being wrong with the ovaries. And they're not cysts on the ovaries. They're they're just the eggs, which Who are normal for the it ovaries. That? Yeah, it's, it's a Why big it's a big mess up actually. It, this is PCOS is like okay, let's just go back to the drawing board and start over with the right name and the right. So let me just state what it is quite clearly, um, and also acknowledging that many women have been told they have it and they don't. It is a, a hormonal condition that is characterized by having too many male hormones. Essentially, I think the way I like the simplest way is it's the it's the condition of having excess male hormones when all of their causes of excess male hormones have been ruled out. Okay. Okay. So in the simplest terms, so if you're a listener out there sitting thinking, well, I don't have facial hair, or I don't have, then it might be time to go read my blog post called "Maybe You Don't Have PCOS." I mean, I think it's called "Maybe It's Not PCOS," mm-hmm. where I've I've looked at that. I've tackled that a few times on my blog actually. But part of the problem is this current practice, which is not 
not accurate. It's not what the doctors are supposed to be doing, but diagnosing PCOS with an ultrasound, that cannot be done. So an ultrasound is an imaging study of mm-hmm. the pelvis where you can visualize the ovaries and the uterus. And that's useful for lots of things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, in, there's many gynecological conditions that can be assessed that way, but PCOS is not one of them. Because... Uh, why? How? Who's regulating? I know. What's like, going on? So, how come they can do that then and diagnose it? Yeah, so there's a bit of discussion about this. It's not just me saying this. Well, just to put it in context, there's a there's an article. that's actually, you could have her on the podcast one time. She's a, she's a, a Sydney researcher, I think. Tessa... I'll mention her name. There's yeah. a, a paper, but her name's Tessa Kopp. She, um, she wrote a paper that was an article that was published in the British Medical Journal saying, I think it was like something about the, you know, the current criteria, meaning, i.e. ultrasound, is leading to unnecessary diagnosis of women with PCOS. And the gist of the article is, you know, kind of freaking out all these young women when mm-hmm. they really either have nothing wrong or have a temporary situation so here's an example of a temporary PCOS, just to give you, and just stop me if I'm being too technical, but I think- No, I'm loving it's, it. It's, okay. Yeah. So as part of that maturation process of the hormonal system, of the ovarian communication between the ovaries and the brain, as part of that system, when we're teenagers, we make, first of all, quite a lot of male hormones. That's normal. Actually, as teenagers, we're quite a, quite a high level of male hormones- we're a little bit insulin resistant. That's another, we have sort of a, not, not a problem with insulin, but we're, we're less sensitive to insulin as when we're teenagers. And then as part of that maturation process of the menstrual cycle, when estrogen and progesterone kick in, when we start ovulating and having real menstrual cycles, that helps to mature and kind of downregulate that, if, if you will, almost a temporary PCOS of being a teenager. Okay. And... What that means, so that's one example of when PCOS is kind of temporary. And in Tessa's paper, the one I just mentioned, the British, we can put it in the show notes if you want. The, yeah, I definitely will. Um, she talks about in some cases, definitely PCOS is something that can be outgrown. I've seen that too. So teenagers, women in their early 20s, tend to higher androgen, male hormones, have more eggs on their ovaries because they're young. Mm. That's what ovaries are like. When you're younger, you have more eggs. I mean, most people know that. Mm. That's what they're measuring with the ultrasound. It was still a revelation for me. I mean, it was a few years ago now that when you're born, you're born with all the eggs you're ever going to have. There's not a lot of education about it. I didn't know that. And actually, there's a bit of science to suggest that's not quite the full story. We'll We'll save that for another podcast. You can have me back to talk about menopause one day if you ever want to. I have a lot to say about that. But um, Mm. for the moment. Yeah. But yes, yes, young women do have a lot more active eggs in eggs mm-hmm. in their ovaries that's what the polycystic really means i had this um i have my favorite social media is actually twitter mm-hmm. where i have quite a few conversations you talk with like doctors and scientists from all over the world but i remember this one guy i think she's a gynecologist in the u.s we were tweeting about this whole like please stop diagnosing pcos with ultrasound like it just means nothing and she said yeah if we're you know if we're going to call eggs or normal follicles of the ovaries, if we're going to call those cysts, then it's the ovaries' job to just make cysts 24-7, basically. That's wow. that's what those are. They're eggs. So the language is so important. Yes. Isn't it? And it's yeah. like, if you've been diagnosed with PCOS, it becomes part of the way you identify yes. in the world. And sometimes it's completely wrong. Sometimes it was completely wrong to begin with. Sometimes you outgrow it. Sometimes it's a temporary post-pill situation. Mm. Sometimes it's real. Just to be clear, yes. I mean, not to 
forget about that. There yeah. are some women who, yes, have a pretty significant problem with excess male hormones and a, as a condition called insulin resistance that is part of a what's possibly going to be a lifelong struggle with PCOS. So that's real. Can I ask then, yep. and as a woman who doesn't have PCOS, yes. how would someone have that properly diagnosed? So if you're someone who's like, oh, someone's told me I've, had, I've got this, what do they do now? Yeah, so the two, I'll just, it's, it's actually not that complicated. Okay. So, you know, there's a number of criteria, depending on which criteria, diagnostic criteria, the doctor's going to use. This, I, I prefer, and in my book, I talk about the Androgen Excess Society criteria, where they're very clear that it's basically three things. You have some evidence of high male hormones, either are measurable on blood test or some clear symptoms, which is facial hair or body hair, excess body hair. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two is possibly some evidence that you're not ovulating regularly, mm-hmm. having what are called anovulatory cycles, because it's possible to have a bleed but not have ovulated. Yeah, that was a massive moment in yeah. your book. I was like, what? what? <laughs> so that's pretty classic with PCOS, mm-hmm. these anovulate. So, and then the third thing is that other causes, other things have been ruled out. So it's a diagnosis based on clinical picture. That, that, that's just what it is. It's, it's, a, it, at the, it's a description of symptoms. It's what I said earlier. It's the situation of having high male hormones when other conditions have been ruled out. Mm-hmm. And the other condition, that need, I need to say this here, the other condition that needs to be ruled out. So what's happening is a lot of women who have lost their period to undereating, that's called hypothalamic amenorrhea, are being mistakenly told they have PCOS because... They happen to have, they, they go to their doctor and they say, I haven't had my period. And so the doctor's like, okay, well, let's do some investigations. Let's do this ultrasound. Oh, you have polycystic ovaries, which means nothing. Like at the moment with my patients, if they tell me they have polycystic ovaries, I'm like, yeah, I don't care. Mm-hmm. That means pretty much zero in this context. Mm-hmm. And so in that situation, if you've, under the, some of the, depending on which diagnostic criteria you use currently, and this is partly what this British Medical Journal paper was about. Like, if you've lost your period and have polycystic ovaries, bam, boom, that's the diagnosis right there. And that was the wrong diagnosis because the next step, which is to rule out other things, what the what should have happened is the doctor would say, actually, are you eating enough to get a period? Mm. And what is I it, loved in your book was the case study on the carbs. Yes. That the girl who was eating the yeah. same as her boyfriend because yeah. they were eating clean. Yeah. <laughs> so a mostly very high-fat Mediterranean diet, which we all do and we've yeah. all been told to do. Yeah, low-carb diet. And staying away from starchy carbs. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair, that is right. That is still, I think, a helpful thing for some people. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about – and so recently I've had a bit more information. See, I'm learning all the time too because I'm yeah. not a – biologist and I'm quite curious about everything to do with the body. So I recently was able to find the information that something called gynecological age, which I think is super interesting. Mm -hmm. So what it means is basically how many years you've been having periods. So your age minus the age you were when you started your period. So, you know, if you're 30 and you started your period at 13, then your gynecological age is 17, right? Like that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so on being... Having a young gynecological age or not having had periods for very long makes women a lot more likely to lose their period due to undereating or undereating carbs. So it's the 20-something women that I see who are losing 
their period mm-hmm. to low carb diet. And not if they not if they started out being very insulin resistant or something like that. Maybe that's different. And not if they're a forty five year old woman going into perimenopause and maybe feeling great on low carb. That's different. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about these, you know, young women basically, and also the young women who've been mistakenly told they have PCOS based on an ultrasound, and then Google it and read that they're supposed to go low carb and they're already under eating. That's, oh wow! That basically, they are then at that situation. They are going 180 degrees in the wrong direction from what they need to do. And it's sad because, I mean, this is something, I mean, I've been seeing patients all week in, in um, clinic in Sydney, and I probably had that conversation at least four times this week of someone oh. who's like, oh, I've restricted my diet more when I, you know, trying to get my period back. And mm. Well, can we discuss what, let's say you have an accurate diagnosis of PCOS, what are the lifestyle and diet choices that are most beneficial for a woman who suffers from that? Okay, so if it's a legitimate, if it really is PCOS. Let's say they've been to you. Yes, they definitely. Okay, and yes, I've had some patients like that this week. And like, yes, you have PCOS. Okay, yes, that's that's real. The very next thing to determine, when you, especially when you're trying to decide diet and lifestyle, is to determine if you have insulin resistance. Now, I know that's a bit technical, but I really think your listeners can take go away with that. And it's that's a, a question. next step. Yeah. Do you have insulin resistance? Insulin resistance is like is prediabetes, extremely common. So not a, not a very scary thing because it's so common and it's reversible. So it's definitely mm. worth finding out if you have that. It's typically associated with abdominal weight gain, that kind of apple-shaped weight gain. Mm-hmm. If you have apple-shaped weight gain, you almost 100% have insulin resistance, but you can be relatively slender and still have it. So it's worth testing. And a test for glucose or sugar is not a test for insulin. So with my patients, I do measure insulin, the hormone, with a blood test. And if we deter- and then if in that case, that's what in my book I call insulin-resistant PCOS. So I have a little flow chart in my book of the different types of PCOS. This is the main type of true PCOS. If If... A young, even a young woman has that insulin-resistant PCOS, then yes, there's a case to be made for taking a good hard look at sugar and maybe breads and carbs to some degree and reducing those. But at the same time, eating enough protein, eating enough of the other foods, and then there's a couple of nutritional supplements I talk about that can reverse it. Actually, that condition, insulin-resistant PCOS, is one of my favorite things to treat because it responds... So, so predictably, not that fast. Usually it takes a few months, but mm. fairly predictably, most women can start to get their periods after three to six, about three months, probably. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm sure that prospect is quite exciting it for is. a lot of women. And that was another big takeaway for me in your book was we really have to commit to the changes and stay with them yep. for a three to six month period Yes, for there to be the result, like we have to give it a chance because so often it's like, I've, well, it's been a month and nothing's yeah, happened. Exactly. Because the ovaries have their own time. They're like, oh, I, don't know, I was going to use the analogy for Lord of the Rings, you know, the ants in the Lord of the Rings. Like they're, I like, haven't no, seen it. No, it's fine. <laughs> I'm giving away my age now. But um, And New Zealand. Yeah. And New Zealand. They're very slow moving, right? So there's, um, I talk about in my book, the hundred days to ovulation. So even once your ovaries are completely happy, everything's great, everything's going well, that communication between the brain and the ovaries, it could still take three or four months to ovulate. Mm. Minimum. Wow. And it could take longer. Now, back to your question about, well, what about the pill for all these women with PCOS? 
Okay, let's just wrap that up. Like, let's tie yeah. up tie up that part of the conversation because, unlike endometriosis, where I said earlier, yes, I think it's legitimately those drugs, contraceptive drugs, can relieve symptoms, and you know, there's a place for that. With PCOS, the drugs are very problematic because I'll put it this way: PCOS is a, is a situation of not ovulating and potentially having insulin resistance, and the pill suppresses ovulation and worsens or causes insulin resistance. So it's like the last thing you want to be yeah. doing. And it wow. The pill does certain pills, the one they the ones they use for PCOS do suppress male hormones, androgens, yes. Yes. But only for as long as you take those drugs. Mm. And when you stop them, the androgens, my experience is clinically, the androgens and the bad skin and everything comes back worse than ever which is a heavy price to pay. Mm. If you're like, I'm just going to go on the pill for, you know, five years to deal with this. It's like, okay, that's maybe, okay. But when you come off in five years, be waiting for you. the situation is going to probably be worse. Be worse. I have a question. Um, I actually texted one of my girlfriends who um, has, been di- has been diagnosed with PCOS. And I wanted to know from her, like, what questions would you want to ask, like, as a, as a woman who has that diagnosis? accurate or not, let's say, assuming it is accurate. I thought she raised a really good point. Um, What is your advice regarding fertility health um, for women over the age of 30 who have an accurate diagnosis of PCOS? Because there's a lot of, you know, scare tactics, a lot of anxiety that they have to have kids early because they're going to have lots of trouble conceiving later. Yeah, I'm not. I've heard that from a few patients recently. I do yeah, not I know where, know where coming that's from coming then. from because she said doctors have told her like yeah. you better have your kids before thirty. The thing is, most many case I'd say most cases of PCOS are reversible. As in, if once you can start ovulating regularly, which is true for the majority of cases, you no longer have PCOS. I mean, you, you know, at that point, you're just. Um, I, I don't know why at that point you would be any less likely to fall pregnant than anyone else. In fact, there used to be, um, there was a bit of research suggesting that women with that higher androgen, maybe tendency to anovulatory cycle, that is basically PCOS, women with that, who are, who are kind of calibrated that way. There's definitely a degree of just genetically cali- we were calibrated to a different environment where you had to make babies with under famine or under mm-hmm. potentially different situation, like low, low calorie situations. But there used to, there was some research that women who are calibrated that way actually have a longer lasting fertility than the rest of us. But I've recently heard maybe that's not true. So I used to, in my book, actually, I do say that the good thing about PCOS is you've probably got a bit longer with fertility than average. This is fascinating, isn't and it? The, re- the we're getting told something else. Yeah. I'm not sure what, because the interesting thing is, of course, with endometriosis, that what you just said about, yes, maybe should fall pregnant sooner rather than, rather than later, that would be true for endo. Mm. I have not, I do not understand why people are saying that about PCOS. I shared with Lara that while I understood the topic of endometriosis is broad and deep and perhaps deserving of its own episode, I wanted to at least try for the women listening who might be suffering. No, I'm just. But I'm going to be kind of broad. But I'm just for your, your listeners. So just acknowledging, like I said earlier, it it can be quite a serious disease. Mm. He, my most of my writing is about about endometriosis is from the angle that 
there also needs to be a paradigm shift there. As in, I said earlier, endometriosis is not a hormonal condition. It's affected by hormones, yes, which is why shutting down hormones can give some relief. But fundamentally, it's an inflammatory disease and quite likely an immune, a disease of immune dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And I've written about that in a few places. That's in my book. So with my own patients, I come at it from a completely different angle. I come at it from fixing the gut and immune modulating strategies so that the ultimate goal for many of my patients is that once the inflammation is reduced, they might be able to be able to come off the pill without the symptoms coming back and be able to have the benefits of their cycles and their hormones without the estrogen flaring up the endo basically. Okay. But the other thing I'll just say, I said earlier that I I think there's some evidence, the hormonal IUD that would, you know, can be helpful. And for what it's worth, this is in, there's a patient story, Hannah in chapter nine of period repair manual where she was able to, she spoke to her doctor and she looked at using something called micronized progesterone instead of the progestin, the sun that she was on. So remember we said earlier, progesterone is its own thing. It's the hormone that's exactly identical to our own hormone. Mm -hmm. You can take that. It's a prescription item. Okay. Can I say the name? So it's called Prometrium in Australia. It's something that, it's in the book. So, I mean, without I mean, I was just going to buy the bloody book anyway. Yeah, so just buy like... the book. Look at that case study. Yeah. Think about it. Maybe ask your gynecologist. Some of the gynecologists will prescribe it. Yeah. Some won't for what re- whatever reason. I don't know. I was, actually had a conversation with a gynecologist colleague I met in New Zealand recently. And I said to her, I said, tell me truly, like, why, like, can, can progesterone, micronized progesterone not be used? Like, it, surely it can be used for heavy bleeding, you know, endometriosis, all the things that progestin drugs are used for. Is there a reason it can't be used? And she said, no, of course it can be used for those things. It's just more expensive. I'm like, yeah, but a lot of patients aren't going to care because the progesterone is so much nicer in terms of mood and Mm. fewer side effects. Yes, yes. and less disruptive to our natural state. Yeah, well, depending on if you use enough of the, even the real progesterone, a high dose will still suppress ovulation, but the lower dose doesn't. Um, I want to circle back to the pill yes. because a lot of the questions that I had from listeners, it's a lot of women who um, want to know how to come off the pill. Yes. And so I've been on the pill twice and both times suffered pretty insane acne afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And the second, the last time I was on it, the reason I came off is because I identified I just didn't have any feelings at all. Yeah. I was just like this blanket I couldn't get happy and joy. I couldn't get really sad, like sad things were happening. And yeah. I was like, why aren't I even crying? So yeah. I was just so suppressed. I was like, this is no good. So that was my reason, but I kind of knew the acne was coming. And boy, did it. I mean, I've had a recent bout of hormonal acne after losing a baby early last year. And that definitely showed up real time on my face. But prior to that, when I'd come off the pill, it came in a big way. Can we just talk about, we've established here and just get off the pill. So that's got to happen. If you're on the pill, well, for, for women who are on it as a, maybe a contraceptive. Yeah. And we need to be careful here because I can just imagine that it's like, yeah, Laura said. Just ran, uh, no, like, actually, Alison said that. <laughs> get off the pill. Because um, I've, I've had a bit of pushback on my Instagram about that lately, actually. 
you know, yes, we still have to say, speak to your doctor, think about it, make a plan for alternative contraception, all that. Yes. yes. Don't just immediately get off, especially if there's underlying health problems. But that's why I wrote a whole book about this. So mm-hmm. women can at least have get a strategy. Informed. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So coming off. So let's say we've decided to stop taking the yeah. pill. Um, is there anything we can do in the lead up or when that acne comes? What yes. are some, is there strategies? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, post-pill acne is more likely to happen after Yasmin, which is drospirenone. That's the progesterone. That's the drug in it. Or Diane, which is cipterone. So those two progestins are, the problem is they are the ones that are very strongly anti-androgen and also they dry up skin oils. So some, not all pills are like that. Like some pills, the one pills that have the leave ingestrol drug, the one I was talking about that causes hair loss, they can actually cause acne. So it's usually coming off. But if someone's had a problem with acne, they're usually given these particular drugs. And so then it's a drug withdrawal issue. So I think in my book, I have this diagram and in, I also have a blog post called How to um, Prevent and Treat Post-Pill Acne, where I did a little diagram of what happens. So when you take those drugs, it suppresses skin oils and androgens, and then those upregulate. The body has to upregulate because it's thinking, what the heck is going on? We need to wake, make way more skin oils than we thought. And then you stop the drug, and then it's overproducing. It just goes crazy. And that's pretty predictable, actually. Mm. And so what I like to say, one of the, the messages in my book, too, was for some things, especially for this, is I say to my patients, okay, look, it's not a problem with you. It's the problem with the drug that you're trying to withdraw from. Because, you know, as women, well, one of the things I've observed that we all do, myself and patients, is we just internalize the blame. It's like whatever it is, it's like oh, must totally. be something. It's something I ate wrong or something I did wrong it. or some other way I was thinking that must be wrong <laughs> or just something wrong with me. Like I'm just broken. Mm. I must need this pill because my skin is crazy. So my message about post-pill acne is it's a drug withdrawal process that peaks at a, typically at about the six-month mark. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's probably going to turn around anyway. But just hang in there. No, but yeah, I mean, hang in there, yes. But also there's lots of things you can do. So typically with my patients, what I, if I, I'll ask them, what happened the last time you came off the pill? You know, if, if post-pill acne was a problem, then I'll say, okay, I'll say, I need you to start treatment now while you're still on it. Let's do a month of treatment while you're still on it, on Yasmin, for example. Then when you stop, we'll see, we might give a little bit extra treatment. We'll see how you're going. And it's not going to be as bad as you think. So usually there's a bit of a honeymoon period. Like the acne usually kicks in about two or three months. Yes, oh, yes exactly. <laughs> That's what happens. So like treatments, the treatments I provide in my book and my the blog post, How to Prevent and Treat Post-Pill Acne, are probably remove normal cow's dairy from the diet, but you can still have goat and sheep and dairy and butter. Take a really careful look at sugar, including dried fruit and fruit juice, and temporarily remove that because that just flares up skin for various reasons I discuss in the book. Maybe look at a zinc supplement, which I feel safe saying as just a blanket statement for every. It's just a, such a nice. I know. Can I ask you a question yeah. about zinc? I um to to help with the acne I experienced after the miscarriage. I started to take zinc yeah. and saw an immediate great improvement. It was yeah. incredible. I went to the doctor and she said, um, only continue using it if you're deficient because she said that you can basically, I don't know, 
if she used the word overdose. But basically you don't need it forever. You use it in periods of time but not all the time. So I stopped taking it. Okay. I, with my patients, I tend to use it if needed or certainly if for any vegetarians or vegans because there's basically no zinc, almost no zinc in those diets. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing about zinc. It doesn't store. The, you actually need the amount of zinc you have in your body is basically the amount you consume that day. So the, one of the issues longer term is if you were using a really high dose of zinc, it can disrupt your absorption of other nutrients, particularly copper. So that's the okay. one that they think. But a high dose would be like 60 milligrams or, you know, 100 milligrams or something like that. Most of the doctors I've spoken to and what I feel is that if you're at 30 milligrams or less it's just as a, a daily, daily dose, yeah. my underst- my belief, my understanding is that's fine. That's good to know. For most people. Because I was actually thinking about picking it back up again as we go to try for a baby because I know there's good links on... It's good for fertility. Fertility is I, w- it? I wouldn't yeah. take 30 during a pregnancy, I guess, but you can, you know, you can speak to your clinician about that, but yes. certainly safe when you're trying. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing to know about zinc, because we're talking about zinc, mm. do not take it on an empty stomach or you will feel sick. sick. <laughs> I'm saying this to all those women out there, please. I learned that the hard way. Take it directly after food mm. or it just makes you feel nausea. The nausea that you get from zinc isn't harmful to the body, but it's not pleasant. Not pleasant. No. So where were we with the strategies? So it's yeah. looking at those food groups yeah. and reducing zinc. those, picking up a supplement like zinc. There was actually a clinical trial of zinc for, it was for teenage acne, but it works for older women as well. And they basically concluded something like, it's, I quoted, I think I have it in my book, or certainly from that blog post, you can link to the study. They said, basically zinc works as well as the pill for skin, but it's cheaper that was the statement they used in the paper. Like, but it's, you know, it's probably better because it's cheaper. I'm like, okay, it's cheaper. And, and <laughs> it doesn't cause, it doesn't cut, ovulation. Exactly just shut down hormones. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks guys. <laughs> so that's a good sort of um, one month out plan. Yes. And then staying with it. it yes. Yeah, and just hanging in there. See how it just tossed off the pill. See how it is. And what I say to my patients is don't let it get too bad. Like if it starts to flare, email. I take emails be- with, from my patients in between appointments for things like that because like I don't want it to e- – acne is easier – breakouts are easier to prevent than mm. they are to treat once they're full-blown. Yeah. So then we can bring in some other treatments, which yes. I list in the book. We won't list them all here because some no. of them have yeah. sort of a few precautions. I mean, they're, they're all – nuanced. Yeah. 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 I think that's really incredible advice. I've got a lot of questions about women who want to come off. Yeah but they're kind of scared of what's coming for them. And what I thought was quite interesting about that, and that's where I was as well, is we actually value our vanity higher than we do what's yes. actually going on or what has been. It's true. And all, all that said, Which though, is, I, I, know I can so understand. Normal. I mean, skin, it is, I can understand, you know, why. Mm. And it's debilitating. I mean... I just had no confidence. Yes, it affects you know, women on lots like of levels. Talking and to people face to face. Because we are in a beauty obsessed. So yeah, I mean, we're that's, just big, that's about a bigger conversation. But for young women, power comes from beauty. So yes, it's it's a real it's challenging. And so I take it quite seriously. I'm like, yes, to my patients, I am going to help you as much as possible. I promise you it's not gonna be as bad as last time. And after six months it's gonna you'll be turning the corner and mm-hmm. not as bad as you think. Yeah. Um <laughs> I'm conscious of time. Yeah. We have maximum 10 minutes. <laughs> I've got so many questions. Um, okay. I think it might be helpful 
first of all, can you, um, I know because I'm in this world of getting ready to try for a baby, what does ovulation look like? I've been doing a little, yeah. little bit of semi-education myself when I say to my girlfriends, there's different types of mucus. Yes. But can you explain to us so we're able to identify when we're ovulating those different types yes. of mucus? Okay. So let's just, well, we'll say a couple of things about it because you can actually see fertile mucus but not ovulate. Which is oh my god! I know. Sorry, <laughs> but like, well, just for what it's worth, it, it, that is important to say that. Okay. So, bloody hell! I mean, there's different stages of fertile mucus. At first, it goes quite watery. So this is like a vaginal discharge. But yep. I mean, it's normal to always have some discharge of like some type. But this is different. This is when it starts to get quite um, liquidy and then slippery. The the true what they call peak day looks like and feels like raw egg white. It's like someone cracked an egg almost. Yep. It can be quite a large quantity. And here's the thing. Here's just more of a feminist perspective. Why the heck are girls not taught that I in school? No, it wasn't until I <laughs> was interested in having a baby yeah. that I found out about it. And I was like, oh, I know. What? <laughs> All of those times I also thought I was pregnant, I definitely wasn't. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, like, I could have been. But. So this is the phrase is called body literacy which is a phrase coined by nice. my friend and colleague named Laura Wurschler. I do love it. It's about, and there's actually a That's whole actually really beautiful. body literacy. Yeah. There's a whole, actually there's a number of mm. projects about this we could go into later, but mm. there's a real movement for women to be able to read their bodies, understand their bodies, because it is not that complicated no. at all. And watching for fertile mucus is one of the most basic signs when you see that slippery blob. If you don't want to have a baby. Yeah. Or if you don't want to have a baby, that's the time to, yeah, ooh, super careful. Mm -hmm. You know, yes to condom or if you're really worried, that might be when you see that slippery mucus. Mm. That, I mean, this now we're moving a little bit into... Um, what's called fertility awareness method, which is also having a huge revival, which is yes. learning is avoiding pregnancy. This is me at the moment. Yeah. By, so you can, fertility, body literacy is how you can become pregnant by knowing when you're fertile or you can avoid pregnancy by mm -hmm. knowing when you're fertile. Because, fun fact, men are fertile every day. Women are fertile basically six days per cycle, but really only one. Mm -hmm. So we're basically fertile one day, but it's six because sperm can survive for five survive, days. Survive, yeah. So they have to add those on. The little suckers. Yeah. <laughs> so they're in there. So you have to account for that. Yeah. So there's all kinds of resources. I mean, mm. that would be, obviously, you could have some fertility awareness method people on your podcast. That might be quite a good thing. That if would you be so If you haven't already, they can do a deep dive into all mm. of how that works. Yeah. There's little devices, actually little computers now that can help you do that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so just clarifying when yes. it looks like egg white. Yes. Raw egg white. Raw, edw raw egg white. Yeah. Then, then that's that, a then surefire sign that that's, you're... That's basically estrogen stimulates that mucus. Mm -hmm. So because in a normal cycle, what's called an ovulatory cycle where ovulation is going to occur, we get an estrogen surge before ovulation. That's what that makes all this, this mucus, which is actually a sperm escalator. I don't know if you knew that, but without that... It has little spirals inside the mucus. I had kind of thought the consistency. I was like, does yeah. it trap it in there or it what is it? It whisks it up. Like it's like a wick almost. So if you didn't have that, I think it would take sperm. I think it was like something like 10 hours to swim. Like something like like, like just hours and hours, like 12 hours to swim to the fallopian tubes where the egg is, which is pretty exhausting because yeah. they're <laughs> tiny. And... But with, I think with, with the presence of the fertile mucus, mucus, it's like two minutes. Like it's something, it's something I don't wow. quote me exactly on the numbers. So it's almost but, like a, um, like a, 
spider web type thing in a way. It has a little, little spiral, like little, it just, the, the sperm just moves through it really quickly. Mm. Oh, it's just so fascinating. So there's that. And then, but the other thing to know, so that's, you see the mucus before ovulation and then you see a temperature rise after ovulation. And that's how you can know for certain that you ovulated. Because remember I said you can have what's called an anovulatory cycle. Yes. Typical with PCOS and other, it can happen in other situations too, where you don't, your body tries to ovulate, but you don't do it. And that's when you can see fertile mucus, maybe a few times as your body's like, let's try, let's try. It's like, no, didn't get there. In that situation, there would not be a temperature rise. Um, your book helps us detect our period clues, yes. which I really loved. Yeah. Um, if we think about a healthy period, quote unquote, yeah. um, what are the clues? Okay. The, the first question <laughs> And I do say this, and I'll just say it again. We started the podcast with this, and we'll finish with this. The first question is, am I ovulating? That, that's, that's what defines a cycle. That's a healthy cycle. And I have stated, you could be having bleeds, but not like if you, if you, if you have, for example, only like th- three or four bleeds in the year or something, those are not cycles. You're not probably ovulating with those. Mm-hmm. So the very first question is, am I ovulating? Which means simple... Well, you could ask the doctor. Or the do- I mean, if the doctor might help you to figure that out or might not. But the you know, looking for the fertile mucus, tracking temperature. And when I say, when we say tracking temperatures, that's like an under the tongue temperature with the thermometer first thing in the morning. Yep. And f- figuring that out. And then if you're not ovulating, the very next question is why not? Mm-hmm. That's that's the step. And then I guess other clues that I look for is what we talked about. How heavy is it? It shouldn't be more than eighty mils. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't be longer bleeding than about six to seven days at the most. Like most people are between sort of two to five days. Mm -hmm. Longer cycles, longer bleeds are almost always anovulatory cycles as in you didn't ovulate. Got it. That's interesting. And it shouldn't be painful. It should not be painful. I'm just going to say that. I mean, I know pain is very common. Well, I had a lot of questions from girls around cramps and pain. And I've, like hands up, I've had period pain in my life. So I'm not saying I've never had pain. I know, yes, it's going to happen to all of us at times. But in general, with some of the simple things that I talk about in the book, most women, not the endometriosis group, who, like I said, they're, they have yeah. their own separate podcast, but for anyone without a, a, you know, a, a gynecological reason for the pain, it, period pain should go. Mm. It should improve at least most of the time. Mm-hmm. I don't accept this idea that it's just meant to be that way. That's not my experience with my patients over the last 25 years. Most of them can reach symptomless periods that are no pain and no significant premenstrual symptoms either. Mm. Um, I finish each episode by asking my guests the yes. same question. Okay. And I don't think you know what it is, no, which is exciting. I do not. So Offline exists as an exploration of self, which yeah. is exactly what we're doing here today, yeah. is helping women discover, you know, um, that for themselves by way of their menstrual cycles and understanding their blood and their mm-hmm. bleeding. Um. So when you're sort of sitting in true self, and what I mean by that is without the labels, without the doctor, without the social media following, without the business, without the book, all of that stuff, when you're sitting in your true self, who are you and sort of what comes up for you when I say that? (laughs) I'm a serious wilderness lover. Mm. I'm quite a strong, I'm a very strong introvert as well. So... 
I, my favorite thing to do, well, I grew up in the country in the middle of nowhere, 45 minutes from the nearest town. And if I could, I would go back to that kind of life, but my husband likes to live in town. But anyway, yes. (laughs) Yes. So that, and I like to do overnight tent, like overnight hikes with a tent and out in the middle of nowhere. Out in nature. In nature. I think that's, Mm. yeah, that's probably close to my true Mm. self. That's so beautiful. Thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I've learned so much from the book. Um, I'll link everything. Great. Everything we've spoken about will be linked. Yes. Um, And to the women listening, do yourself such an enormous favour and buy the book. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.